This season of Threshold is underwritten by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Welcome to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and I'm walking in a long parade with a couple of thousand extremely happy Norwegians. I'm in the town of Longyearbyen, which is on a Norwegian archipelago called Svalbard. It's way up in the Arctic, about halfway between Norway and the North Pole. And I happen to be there on May 17th, Norwegian National Day. People here are celebrating in style. I love your, your dress. Does it have a name? Bunald. Bunald? Yeah. And what is the history behind it? It's uh, every part of the country has their own bunad. So it sort of shows uh, where you're from. This is Kari Ellingsen. She's 26, and like many of the women and girls in the parade, she's wearing an old-fashioned dress embroidered with ornate flowers. And she says this word, bunad, applies to the outfits that many of the men are wearing, too. So do you know where they're from by looking at that? Her suit is from the north, I guess. That's Kari's boyfriend, Henning Shatna, also 26. Almost everyone in the parade is carrying a little Norwegian flag. And not just carrying a flag, waving it enthusiastically, smiling big, and spontaneously bursting into cheers. It's a long, jubilant river of fluttering red, winding its way through the snowy streets of this high Arctic town. This is springtime, and everyone's happy. Norway has a lot to be happy about. It's beautiful, wealthy, and deeply egalitarian. The Economist magazine currently ranks Norway as the most democratic country in the world. And they've also set some very bold climate policies. For example, they're aiming to phase out the sales of new gas and diesel vehicles by 2025. And everyone I talked to at this parade, including Kari and Henning, seems truly proud of what the country has come to stand for. I know that some people may think that it's like nationalist this, but that nationalist, yeah. Uh, it's not uh, Norway for Norwegian, but it's like sort of Norway for everyone. And I think it's like a celebration of the human rights and freedom of speech. Mix in these ideals with the sheer physical beauty of this country, with steep mountains rising out of sparkling seas, and you can see why people here get a little misty-eyed when the national anthem is played. What is Norway? Yes, Norway is Vikings and farmers and the Bunad. This is Isalil Kolpis, and she says there's a shadow side to this story of national pride. Everything Norwegian is this, and what did we decide was not Norwegian? Samis are a part of what was decided. That is not a part of Norway. The Sami are the indigenous people of northern Scandinavia and western Russia. Today, the Sami are strongly associated with reindeer herding, but historically, they provided for themselves in all sorts of ways. They fished and gathered plants, hunted seals and moose. They developed nine distinct but related languages and traded with each other across their Arctic homeland, which they call Sápmi. But when the kingdoms in the south began to form into the nations of Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia, borders went up across traditional Sami migration routes, and their languages, traditions, and spiritual practices were driven underground. In recent decades, Sami people have been finding their voices and reclaiming their culture, but at the same time, they've been trying to come to terms with a new threat to their way of life, climate change. 
We're going to explore all of this on the next two episodes of Threshold. I am a Sami, and my country is Sápmi, but it is colonized. If you tell people that you're Sami, you have to be a representative of the whole people. I always get the question, are you really indigenous because I'm white? We see ourselves as the culture carriers, because the reindeer is the backbone of the entire Sami culture. We need the fish, we need food. We can't eat the oil. They killed our culture and our language. Or they tried at least. So is it just me, or have Vikings become really popular lately? I mean, for a while it was all zombies, zombies, zombies. But now, it seems like you can't throw an axe without hitting a Viking. There's the TV show, that's what you're hearing in the background, but also movies, Halloween costumes. It seems like everywhere I look, it's Odin and Thor and runes. The Vikings were Germanic people who emigrated into the southern part of the Scandinavian peninsula. Their culture flourished and expanded over a period of about 300 years, starting around the year 800. That seems like a very long time ago to us now. But way before that era, another culture had already taken root in Scandinavia, the Sami. Their ancestors were likely among the very first people to enter the peninsula when the Great Ice Sheets retreated more than 10,000 years ago. So when the Vikings got in their ships and began exploring the long coasts of present-day Norway, Sweden, and Finland, they may have heard the voices of Sami people ringing out from the forests as they sailed by. Voices that might have sounded something like this. This is Krister Stuart. He's Sami, and this way that he's singing is called yoik. My name is Krister Stuart. I'm 58 years old. We'll be going back to Norway in just a bit, but I'm talking to Krister in Umeå, Sweden, a university town about 400 kilometers or 250 miles south of the Arctic Circle. And this is an Umeå River yoik. It's meant to evoke the river flowing just a few miles away from us. Krister says you don't yoik about something or to something, you just yoik it. You connect or almost commune with something through song. You have to be the river. You yoik it, you have to become that thing. Everything in the Sami world has a yoik. Trees and creatures, villages and mountains, and people too. Every person, even you, have a, your own song. But you cannot create your own song. So if I knew you better, I could say, ah, oh, this is you, I'm describing you. As long as you have your own yoik, and people still know to yoik you, you're, you're alive. Even if you're not physically alive, yoiking blurs the hard line between life and death. It doesn't only pay respect to those who've passed on, it evokes them. And the yoik can bring other things close, too. Take the swan. Then you must feel that uh, how the, the wings come when it comes at spring. Mm-hmm. 
And if if you don't think that the swan will not come, so when the when the swan is coming, then the spring comes. It's not the other way around. The yoik brings the swan, and the swan brings the spring. It's powerful. This might have been why the Vikings respected the Sami, or even feared them. Even though Vikings are now usually portrayed as aggressive, bloodthirsty people, like the Sami, their culture was centered around intimate connections with the natural world, and both groups had lots of stories of beings who shapeshifted between human and animal form. Most scholars agree that the Sami and the Vikings coexisted in relative peace for hundreds of years. But when Christian emissaries began arriving in Scandinavia, things changed. At first, both the Vikings and the Sami resisted the new religion, but within a few hundred years, the Vikings had more or less surrendered to Christianity. The Sami continued to resist. In the 1600s, the church decided yoik was a form of sorcery and banned it along with Sami drumming. It was still considered a sin in my home area, so you didn't really hear people do it officially, but when they were alone or if they were drunk. Krister grew up north of here, near Kirina, Sweden, and every so often he heard people around him singing in this special way. But when he asked questions about yoik, some people wouldn't talk about it, and others said, no, I don't yoik, even though he had heard them do it. So he kept asking questions, and eventually he became one of the first people ever to write his doctoral dissertation about Yoik. He's now a senior lecturer at the Department of Language Studies and the Department of Sami Studies at Umeå University. And even after all of these years of research and reflection, he can still get the feeling that Yoiking is wrong somehow. I know my history, but still uh, can feel that, uh, yeah, somewhere behind it's, oh, this is not correct. So I think a lot of the kids attending this school are Sami without either realizing it or without wanting to realize it. Isalil Kolpis is 27 years old. She teaches at a high school in the Arctic city of Trumsa, Norway. And I just want to flag here that although we're bouncing back and forth between Sweden and Norway, there are also Sami people in Finland and Russia. Isalil says the experiences of the Sami were different in each country, but there are some common threads. And one of the big ones is this pressure to assimilate. Sami people are white. They don't necessarily stand out visually in the dominant Scandinavian and Russian societies. And this is one of the complexities of being Sami, she says. You can hide your identity if you want to. And on the other hand, if you don't want to hide it, you sort of have to make a point of it. And that can be uncomfortable. So Isalil says she understands why many of her students either don't know they're Sami or don't want to claim that identity. And I try to say to them, if your family is from northern Norway more than two generations back, a, a Sami might have snuck in there. <laughs> <laughs> For hundreds of years, the Sami were considered inferior, first by the church and then by the state. She says in the 1800s, the pressure on the Sami really ramped up. There was this thought that to create a nation, you have to have one language. Like one language, one nation, one people. That means if it's not Norwegian, it doesn't really fit our project right now. <laughs> it's like, it's not that convenient that you have a double identity. You have to choose one and please choose the Norwegian one. And then they were concerned about loyalty for the Sami people are, a lot of them were nomads crossing the borders. 
And so they were like, you have to choose. You have to choose one nationality because we're building a country over here. Please join. Hundreds of years later, Isalil herself felt that pressure to choose. She says when she was growing up, no one in her family talked about the fact that they were Sami. Yeah, um, it's, it's such a weird thing because I, I've always known, because my last name is Kolpus and that's an old Sami name. So I've always known and I've always like heard my grandmother and my grandfather talking Sami, and, but I didn't really realize it or understand it until I was like 18. That was when Isalil's cousin received her first gokti, the traditional Sami dress. And I was like, oh, oh, that's right. We're, we're actually Sami. It's not just a thing like some of us are, but we all are. And then I started exploring it more and got my first gokti. An elderly relative passed the garment on to Isalil. And it's, it's the most beautiful piece of clothing I've ever seen. Isalil says it felt transformative to make her Sami identity visible, not only to the outside world, but to herself. Like when I put on the gakti or when I had my first Sami conversation with my grandmother, it was, it just, it was like coming home or something. It was, I even get like teary eyed thinking about it. I just went, oh my God. I've been missing this my whole life. Like, this should have been my mother tongue. I should have been wearing these clothes every, like, 17th of May or... And just feeling that uh, it, it, I belonged there. Not that I don't feel I belong in Norwegian culture, because I feel 100% Norwegian too. But it was just... It just felt so right, those little first steps. And then I went, okay, I have to go all in now. <laughs> like, <laughs> if I'm... I have to commit to this. I don't know. I just, it just felt right. Yeah. It was strange. <laughs> she started sharing pictures of herself wearing the gokti on social media and sometimes writing posts in Sami. Lots of people were supportive, but not all. A cousin told her that some aunts and uncles didn't approve. I don't know how, like, how annoyed they are or if it's just like a comment in passing, like they're just, oh, oh, she saw me now or something like that, which you hear a lot when you when you're a part of the Sami population who are reclaiming, uh, you hear a lot, oh, you're Sami now. And you go, no, no, I've always been Sami, but I try not to think so much about it. I think it's, I try to focus on the other side of the family who is really supportive. And a lot of my cousins on that side has also started to wear the gakti. There are now Sami parliaments in all four countries, and Sami people are increasingly making themselves seen and heard in all sectors of society. For Isalil, this process has happened in tandem with becoming more politically involved, especially around environmental issues. Like, a lot of people say, like, oh, you're indigenous and you must be in touch with nature. And yeah, maybe, but I hope that I would care about the same issues, even though if I wasn't Sami. <laughs> uh, but um, it's a fact that uh, uh, a lot of the Sami culture is intertwined with nature and a lot of our expressions are, are based in how we used to live very close to nature, and some of us still do. Me, I'm like what you call a city Sami, or an asphalt Sami. It's like the derogatory term. <laughs> but um, we have a lot of issues that affect us as a people, as a culture. At the same time, it affects nature. And it we see that it affects the way we want to keep our culture alive or the way we want to live. In that way, my Sami identity and the part of me that cares about environment is two sides of the same story. Isalil says Sami communities are fighting the expansion of mines, railroads, and logging operations on land that they consider to be their ancestral home. 
And she says many Sami people are very concerned about what's going on in the ocean, too. Norway owns vast offshore oil reserves, and it's that oil which has made Norway one of the richest countries in the world, ranking right up there with Switzerland and the United Arab Emirates. Just a few days before I met Isolil, the Norwegian government had opened up more than 100 new areas for offshore oil exploration. I don't get it. It's such a bad choice. <laughs> Why should we just keep pumping up oil and being pretending to be moral superior to everyone and <laughs> going like, oh, we're the happiest people in the world while we're drowning in oil. <laughs> Norway doesn't actually use much of that oil. They export what they drill and supply almost all of their domestic energy needs through renewables. But Isalil says that doesn't make up for the fact that the oil and gas Norway is drilling is still going to get burned somewhere, and that heats up the planet. If there's one country in the world that can afford to be green, it has to be us. She thinks Norway is trying to have it both ways, a reputation for environmental leadership and the fossil fuel wealth. And she says it's time to make a choice. If we just make the decision and just go, no, no more, we don't open any more oil rigs now, no, no more fields, no more areas, then we are forcing ourselves to look in the other direction. I think that's why I'm so interested in this contradiction that Norway's facing, because it is the same contradiction that the whole world is facing. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of concentrated and yeah. more easy to see. Humanity has to make yeah. a definitive decision. Yeah, we just have to decide, right? When is it enough information and when do you have enough knowledge to know that this is a bad idea? We'll have more after this short break. Welcome back to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and we're going to spend the rest of this episode in Sweden. Like Norway, Sweden is a world leader when it comes to climate change policy. In 2017, their parliament voted to become a completely carbon-neutral country by 2045, as in net-zero emissions. Sweden also has a very strong social safety net and is a recognized leader in human rights. So if there's anywhere you would expect a minority group to be welcomed... It's Sweden. So it's really important for me to say that I'm really grateful that I belong to the state of Sweden, of course, because that's a privilege to belong to uh, this kind of country. Charlotte Svoni is a PhD student in education at Umeå University. But the problem is when you're Sami, you are um, discriminated. Uh, and this is a big issue. And that's not just historical, that's continuing. That is continuing. Like Krista Stur, Charlotta grew up in the north of Sweden in a reindeer herding family, but she says... We also have to remember and recognize that it's not just reindeer herders that are Sami, they are just Sami all over Sweden, and it's just a minority of us that have reindeers. Charlotta made a point of mentioning this to me right as we started our interview, because throughout Sápmi, there's a tendency to simplify the Sami story down to reindeer herding and nothing else. And in Sweden, this actually became law, the Reindeer Grazing Act of 1886. The state of Sweden decided that the only true Sami were the ones that was reindeer herders in the mountain area. If you were reindeer herder in the forest or if you were fisher, hunter or just whatever, then you had to be Swedish. So this huge portion of the Sami community was basically de or they tried to. Yeah, yeah. 
Thousands of Sami families in Sweden were just suddenly not Sami anymore, at least in the eyes of the state. So in my point of view, it would be like, okay, well, if you don't own a cow, you're not American. Could you have that kind of uh, law? It doesn't make sense. People are people and we shouldn't be defined by an animal. And I don't think any other people would say, well, I belong to this if I own a, a, a pig. Well, <laughs> The logic behind the reindeer law seems to have been to control the Sami by trapping one part of the community in amber and erasing all the rest. This mindset was summed up in the slogan, a lap should be a lap. Lap was the term outsiders used for the Sami, and in northern Scandinavia is still called Lapland. For the Swedish-speaking majority, this slogan, a lap should be a lap, basically meant a mountain reindeer herder should stay a mountain reindeer herder. All other Sami people should assimilate. There is today a, a conflict within the society caused by the government divide and conquer strategy, I think. More divisive laws followed. Special schools were set up for children of Sami reindeer herders, which again singled these families out as somehow more authentically Sami than anyone else. But these schools offered a lower quality education because the Sami children were assumed to be less intelligent. Then in 1922, the story takes what might be its darkest turn. This is when the Institute for Racial Biology was established in Uppsala, a university town near Stockholm. I'm not sure if this is true or not, but they say that Hitler was really impressed by the research that Sweden had in Uppsala. We had this racial measurings and stuff. They came up here and they were, you know, measuring the heads of little kids. They have to stand there all naked, like, you know, like animals. And uh, they were not treated with respect at all. And this is my grandma's generation. What they were thinking was that if you had a, some type of skull, uh, you were more stupid. And if you had this more skull that is more longer, you are smarter. All of this is complete nonsense, with no scientific basis whatsoever. But this was no obstacle for Hermann Lundborg, who helped to found the Institute for Racial Biology and remained its leader until 1936. He contributed significantly to the eugenics craze of his day. This period in Swedish history was dramatized by film director and screenwriter Amanda Chernell. Her first feature film, Sami Blood, was released in 2016 and went on to win major awards at festivals around the world. It tells the story of Ella Maria, a young Sami reindeer herder coming of age in the 1930s. But of course, many of the scenes in the film could just as well have been today in many ways. Amanda says, like the protagonist in her film, she sometimes hid her Sami identity when she was growing up. She wasn't ashamed to be Sami, but she didn't want to be forced to serve as some kind of Sami ambassador to the rest of the world all the time. If you tell people that you're Sami, you have to be a representative of a whole people, and you have to be a teacher, and you have to be an historian, and you have to uh, also be a very good, you know, almost a lawyer, right? You would have to start to defend some things. And, and I think most people then are not prepared to do that every day. And she says another thing that happens when you tell people you're Sami is that you get asked to yoik. And of course, I've had that experience a lot of times. Where people have said, yoik for us. Yes, of course. Uh -huh. I mean, that happens all the time. And it's also sometimes I'm proud to do so and 
sometimes when I was younger, you feel um, different in not a good way, I guess. Like, perform your otherness for me. Yes. She put this experience into her film, too. There's a scene when she's at a party in Uppsala in the city down south and with all these Swedish students, and they study anthropology, and they really want her to yoik to sing in, in Sami. And she doesn't know if she should do that or not. And then when she does, there's this strange, ambiguous feeling of they kind of appreciate it, but they don't understand it. And she, she, she suddenly she doesn't really fit into the group, but she's a curious, you know, she's kind of a circus animal. Ella Maria sings tentatively and then just suddenly stops and walks away. All of the complexity of being exoticized by these people is written on her young face. Amanda says after film screenings, young Sami people often come to talk to her. And the first thing they talked about was like, this yoik scene, like, that has happened to me so many times. I'm so happy I'm not alone with this, you know. I don't know how to handle that. This internalized colonization on racism and this colonization of our mind, we all have that. <laughs> but we don't even know it. That is also how uh, I think lots of us have always got that feeling that we are not as smart because that is how people you know, look at us. Charlotta Svoni. And you get that picture of yourself. It gets in deep. It's really deep. And you don't even, we don't even think about it. I think it was in my 30s, maybe just eight, 10 years ago. Um, one day I was like, oh, well, I'm not uglier than everyone. My people is not uglier than everyone else. Why have I thought that? One morning, it's like, what? I have never even talked about it. We have never talked about such things at home. Or it was so sad to realize I have thought for so many years, oh, you see my tears coming again, that we are uglier than everyone else. Yeah, that is. And I'm glad I realized it before I died. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, that is what we are taught and not we have not talked about. I can do a love song from my home. And the lyrics are beautiful as angels and a voice like an uh, a loom. Well, 
when I'm out skiing, you know, and you feel the wind and the power. It's like I can just stand there in the forest and start to enjoy that feeling or that environment. Charlotta says she didn't grow up yoiking, but now sometimes she does it. And she says it's really hard to explain how it happens, and she's good with that. Why should we always have to explain what what I am, what we are, what we think? You know, well, if you don't can explain it, does it then exist? One argument that was interesting that I heard a lot when I was younger is like, but if the reindeer herding doesn't contribute to the BNP, why is it important? BNP is just Swedish for GDP, gross domestic product. And and as a young person going, oh no, I don't know, maybe. Well, I couldn't answer that. And today I think, well, is that the only way of thinking? If you can't contribute with BNP, then it can't exist. Is that the kind of world we want? And especially today when we have this huge problem with the change in the climate, so maybe we should back off from that kind of perspective <laughs> to save this planet. We're going to spend our next episode with a Sami family in Norway who are contending with the effects of climate change on their reindeer herd. But before we leave the subject of Joik behind, I have to mention Sofia Janik. She's one of many Sami musicians who are reclaiming Yoik and using it to help make Sami people and Sami issues more visible. This is one of her songs called We Are Still Here. was created with support from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, the Park Foundation, and our listeners. Our production partners are Montana Public Radio and PRI's The World. Threshold is made by Nick Mott, Rachel Kramer, Cheryl Skibicki, and me, Amy Martin, with help from Frank Allen, Jackson Barnett, Josh Burnham, Michael Connor, Rosie Costin, Matt Herlihy, Rachel Klein, Zoe Rome, Nora Sachs, Maxine Spire, and Zach Wilson. Special thanks to Susanna Amalia Longstrand Anderson, Lars Andreasen, Shersti Mirnes Balto and the Marco Menu Moms, Michael Gundale, Anna Henrietta Reynas Nilut, Lars Esland, Shanley Swanson, Lena Roberg, and Nordisk Film. Our music is by Travis Yost. You can find links to the film Sami Blood, to Sophia Yannick's music, and a whole lot more at our website. And if you'd like to be part of the community helping to get this show made, you can do that at our website too. Just go to thresholdpodcast.org and hit donate. Donate.